The title for today's message is Blue Peter and the Anchors of Aporia. That sounds crazy, but that's what we do here. We do crazy. I'll explain this to you um, real briefly. Christianity is a vessel. And every church that's born in Christianity is a vessel. It is a body. It is a part of a bigger body. It's a smaller vessel. And this vessel of Christianity that is manned at the helm by the, the captain and the crew, which would be your pastor, your pastor's wife or husband, and the leadership team involved are given the responsibility and the authority to steer the ship. Different captains, uh, different people express that authority or use that authority in different ways. Here at Edgewater Church, I've told our leadership team, and obviously you've seen a little bit this morning in the past few weeks, that we are not, uh, we are not interested in being lone rangers or dictators. Uh, that I, I, I know that any success that we've experienced and any success that we will experience at Edgewater Church is due solely to the ability of God to work through flawed human beings. Thank you, sir. And if God is looking across the earth for flawed human beings to use, then there's, it's no coincidence that he found myself. So my wife and I being very aware of our flaws and, and the fact that we didn't come through a seminary and the fact that we weren't really trained up inside the church and leadership. And basically our story adds up to the conclusion that if you know our story, it becomes very obvious that we don't have a clue what we're doing. So we just heard from God to, to come here and do this thing. And so we said, okay, we're going to do it. And I have a great uh, pastor and home church that I came from, but it's a little bit, a little bit bigger. And the, uh, and the way my schedule and his schedule, it just never lined up for him to be able to, to really pour into me and lead me and, and teach me uh, leadership skills or pastorship skills of the church. But he recognized the calling that was on my life. He helped me to recognize it. And he just kind of sent us out and said, you know, God can do this and we're going to help you as much as we can from, from 75 miles away or however, however far away it is. And they did, they did help us greatly at, at the beginning and still help us with their prayers and availability. But um, we didn't know what we're doing. And we, re- we recruited uh, a bunch of people on our leadership team, very few of which know what they're doing. And we're all, we're all doing it together. And we're trying to steer this ship. And it's okay, because that makes the captain of our ship the Holy Spirit. And that makes uh, the leadership of our, of our church truly the Godhead. And we are all under shepherds, if you will, doing our best to hear and obey and, and do the, the work that needs to be done on the ship to keep it going. So it's a vessel, the church is. Blue Peter is the name of the flag that they would fly at the front or sometimes at the stern of a vessel, the stern or the helm, to signify back in the day when they were in port that they were getting ready to release the ship or start on their journey or their expedition to launch, if you will. They would raise this flag up, and it was very, very simple. It was just a blue square, and it had a white square in the middle of it. You can kind of see that theme there in the back of our, of our graphic. And it was signifying that this particular ship is set for sale. This ship is ready to embark upon its journey. Amen. And it's no coincidence that uh, the visions and uh, the movement of the Spirit 
inside of the two wonderful people that we heard from this morning already was in a way of stirring the pot. Um, because that is really the essence of, of what the message is today. Uh, when it comes to the anchors of Aporia, which I'll explain to you in a second, it's very much like taking a different batch of ingredients and pouring it into a, a stew that already existed and doing our best to stir it up. And I want to stir it up in you this morning. It's been stirred up in me this morning. I'm ready to hear from God and I'm ready to be that vessel and I'm ready to speak that word. And I really feel like the Holy Spirit has raised the flag of Blue Peter and is saying, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to embark upon this journey because there's another flag that has been raised from the depths of the earth and the enemy of your soul has been ready for a long time. He's released the hounds, if you will. He has already started his battle of the end times. He is not waiting until Jesus Christ returns. He is releasing more and more evil upon the face of the earth each and every day as we speak. If you need any more evidence of that, you missed it last Wednesday night at the house. We had a documentary showing from a ministry called Elijah Rising, formerly Exodus Cry, and they showed us and unveiled to us some of the atrocities that are happening across the face of the planet, but even right here in our own backyard. Houston, Texas, being the number one port of human trafficking and sex trafficking in the world, and that's just one major dark and evil demon, if you will, that has been released already and that is just devouring souls as we speak. And it's the church's job to stand up and raise another flag and say, we've seen the atrocities. We've seen the sin. We know that it exists and we need to embark on a journey, not just of gathering ourselves together inside of our vessel, inside of our Christianity and preaching to one another about the greatness of it and how one day we're going to take a trip and talking about and expounding upon the vastness of the unsearched oceans, the seas that we have not yet departed upon, what we're going to do when we get there, how we're going to do it, what it means in Greek and what it means in Hebrew. And we can do that for 10 years, for 15 years, for 25 years and never actually launch. But we can build bigger ships. And we can get more people in the ship and we can get more people to to give to the ministry of the ship and talk about how we are going to do amazing things. And everybody can stay hyped up and everybody can stay in sync with the message. But so many times we never raise the anchor and set sail. Aporia is not a physical place. It's not a landmass or a destination. Aporia is a philosophical term. What Aporia is, is like an insolvable puzzle of philosophy. It's an impasse due to an inquiry. It's a crossroads. It's a confusing thing. It is a result of what we would call equally plausible yet inconsistent premises, which means Within philosophy, you have a question and you have two answers. And the two answers both seem like they would work, but they're inconsistent with one another. And they cannot both be applied at the same time, at least not efficiently. And I think that's where we are. I think that is the anchor that holds us down. We're at a philosophical crossroads between generations, between churches, between times between what God has done and what God is doing. 
You know, God is the same yesterday, today and forever. But he says, I'm always yearning to do a new thing. So the character of God never changes. The character of God never changes. He doesn't have a personality complex. He doesn't have split personalities. They aren't even split three ways. It's one God displaying one godly characteristic overall, and he never changes. But inside of his own unchanging self, he's always wanting to do a new thing. He never stops. He never sits still. He never says, we're going to keep doing what has worked, even if it's not working right now. He's always ready to use something else. He's always ready to go a new direction. He will never change his message. He will never compromise on the gospel. He will never let us forget the death and the sacrifice of his dear son. He will never create another way to himself. These things will never change. And God will never change. But the world that we live in and the society that we're a part of is constantly changing. And we're at an impasse. Blue Peter and the anchors of Aporia. I want to start out. Well, I guess technically I already started out. I want to continue uh, with the story of two friends. True story. A guy named Abe and a guy named Drew. They were classmates in high school. And Abe and Drew were both Christians, but they didn't really know that each other was Christians Uh, even though each one of them had a father that was a pastor of a different church. So both pastors' sons, and when they realized that they both shared the same faith, was at a meeting of Promise Keepers, which many of you have probably heard of. Uh, Promise Keepers is a ministry geared towards uh, men, I think, either solely or mostly. And um, it's about keeping that that promise of fidelity and and, uh, faith and all these different things. And... um, They were at one of these meetings and 20,000 men strong, at least all with one voice, all in unity, worshiping God. And and Abe and Drew were there and they recognized each other and saw that they were both Christians who were really seeking in their faith. And that was cool for them. Drew stayed home. Abe went out to experience the world. Fast forward six years later, Abe is 25 and he's he's spending the night on Drew's futon as he had motorbiked across the country as one of his last kind of uh, stints of freedom of student life. He was finishing up law school, uh, but it had taken him many years because he went back and forth and did a lot of different things. Abe led a very eclectic lifestyle. Drew uh, stayed at home, did his college thing, and was, getting on his, was on his way to seminary. And the reason that he invited Abe over to stop there on his way across country was because he had heard something and he wanted to talk to him about it. He was shocked to hear that Abe had uh, left the faith. And had made a big point of letting people know that he had left the faith. And he wanted to ask him why that was. And of course he had it in his mind to share with him apologetically. And try to win him back to the faith. So they're sitting there talking. And Abe packs down his cigarettes and pulls one out. A box of American spirits. And begins to explore and, and share with Drew his experiences since age 19 abe left and did crazy things all over the world he backpacked through india he spent one summer a whole summer planting trees in alberta canada he had he had lived in london england and was bartender for a little while he was uh somewhere in asia he stopped his world travels for a season to meditate in a buddhist monastery 
And he went across the world and met all different kinds of people and saw all different kinds of things. And his experiences had changed his worldview of what he thought about Christianity. And as he sat down in that loft apartment with Drew and began to express his feelings to him, he was, as Drew recalled, a little bit combative and cited Christianity as possibly a negative thing and asked Drew, can you really tell me if Christianity has been something positive for the world? Pointing out things like the Crusades and the Inquisition and all of the people that have been left behind in the wake of the progress of Christianity. Of course, everything he pointed to uh, was from a Catholic perspective, but, but so many people tie those together. And, you know, we are Christians, but we are not Catholics. And Catholics are Christians, uh, and I'm sure some of them truly are. But there's also a lot about Catholicism that doesn't ring true with the way that we think and speak and worship as we just read the Bible and believe what the Bible says. That's a different sermon for a different time. If I just offended you, I'm sorry, and we can talk about it afterwards. I promise I love Catholic people. Um, Continuing uh, on our story, uh, Abe's father, of course, was devastated when his son left the faith. Abe's father, being a pastor, he sent him a C.S. Lewis book. C.S. Lewis book called Mere Christianity that I'm sure we've all heard of, if not most of us have thumbed through or read. And he read the book, and he liked the book, but it didn't change his mind. And so Drew launched into his best apologetics, his best witness, and he wanted to win Abe back to the faith. And Abe wasn't having it. He wasn't truly combative. He was just listed some things, but he he was smile smiling and he was good natured about it. But he said, listen, man, I just all of your all of your reasonings and all of your logic that just doesn't resonate with me. I don't feel like after my experience in the world that that is the only way to seek out truth. And it's not the way that I choose to seek out truth. And that revealed a couple of very distinctive things to Drew. First of all, Abe, in his departure from the faith, was still honest enough with himself to realize that what he desperately wanted at the end of the day was truth. What he wanted to know was the truth. If you know any atheists that are honest with themselves, they'll tell you, they don't just, a lot of them are, do really hate God and hate the church because of experiences that they've had. I want you to realize how many times that word's going to come up. Experience, experience, experience. It's the direction that we're headed. But they're all seeking out truth. From an evolutionary standpoint, a biological standpoint, some type of scientific standpoint, mathematical standpoint, logical standpoint, philosophical standpoint, theological standpoint. It doesn't matter why different people leave the faith or what's going on in their mind. They're all looking for truth. But Drew was at an impasse, an aporia, if you will. He didn't understand how am I supposed to relate rationally to somebody who says they don't believe in reason? How can you reason with somebody who's not interested in reason? And if he's not interested in reason, what is he interested in? There was a man, um, I forget his name. He was a campus college evangelist for over a decade started out in the 70s brad kellenberg or something to that that might be right that might be wrong and he uh, he started out in the 70s and um his story ties into this story he was sharing with drew the same the same guy that was talking to abe how back in the 70s when he was a campus evangelist how many of you know that we are evangelical christians do you understand what that means basically we are christians that yearn to uh, be evangelical or share our faith with the world. Not, not just Christians who are happy with we found a good church and we found good people and we're based on just finding a good place to fellowship and we don't want to offend anybody or 
or uh, make anybody angry by, by pushing our faith on them. That's different than an evangelical Christian. is not somebody who goes out and beats people over the head with their Bible, but they are interested in sharing their faith, as we are here. Well, that's part of the faith. If you're a Christian, you are commissioned by Jesus Christ to share your faith, right? Amen. So that's what we're yearning to do. But there's something wrong. We read the scripture at the beginning. Jesus said, if you, if you are burdened, if you are heavy laden, if you are a worker in the field, you can come to me. And my burden is light and my yoke is easy, is what he said, right? Then we read that in Matthew chapter 11. So I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. For those of you that didn't pay attention in school, that means do not answer this question. Don't raise your hand. The rhetorical question is, how many of you can honestly say that to be evangelical, to be a witness, to share your faith is something that you find to be light and easy? How many of you can say that when exploring how to go out into a world of non-believers and lost souls, that it is an easy thing to manifest, it is an easy thing to figure out how to share that faith and how to get that across to a non-believer? How many of you find it easy to sit down with an atheist and share your faith or to walk into, as Brad does, a college campus and stand on some type of a platform and share your faith with people and get a response. How many of you find that to be a light burden and an easy yoke? I would venture to say most people do not. All the way to the point where most people don't even try. Because it stops on your living room couch five minutes after you think about it. Because it's so hard to figure out how to even get started. Well, what am I going to go do? I'm going to go knock on my neighbor's door and say, hey, do you know Jesus? Well, I mean, what if, what, are they, what if I'm bothering them? What if they're in the middle of something? What if they, they, at this point in my life, we're cool. Like we see each other outside, we wave, I'm that guy, he's that guy. Or in the neighborhood, everybody's, everybody's hanging out. The, mo- the minute I knock on his door and say, do you know Jesus, everything changes. I might as well put a, a banner on the front of my house or a sign in my yard, Jesus freak. I don't want you to get the wrong idea and think that I'm cool. It changes things. So it doesn't usually get beyond that thought process, that five or ten, okay, that's not going to work. What else can I do? Well, I could. One time somebody challenged me. I was a college pastor. I actually did it to myself. And I invited somebody to come in and speak. And they spoke on, uh, their message was Jesus versus the South Beach diet. It was amazing. (laughs) So awesome. It was an awesome message uh, by an awesome guy. And it was very, it was very much geared towards uh, being evangelical. And I, I was so pumped up about it. I was sitting in the front row, and one of my little proteges was sitting next to me. And I said, "Man, we always went out to eat afterwards." And I said, "When we go out to eat, I'm so, I'm so psyched, I'm so pumped. I swear to God, wherever we go, I'm going to stand up in the restaurant and preach." And they're like, "Okay, okay, okay." So of course it was, man. I mean, I was ready to go because I wasn't currently in a restaurant, so it was easy to say that. And I went to the altar, and I was ready, man. I was pumped. Everybody was pumped. We had a great service. And then we hung out for a little while, and we talked, and everything kind of died down a little bit, and we figured out where we're going to go eat. Let's go to TGI Fridays. Okay, good job. Has God in the title? Thank God it's Fridays. I'm still thinking, I may or may not. Now I'm just thinking it to myself. I'm thinking, everybody else probably forgot. I may or may not do this. By the time we got there, I'm like, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. So I sit down to eat, and uh, halfway through my meal, my little protege, little Jared Gordon, nudges me and says, hey, Pastor Thad, about that time. And I'm like, I'm like, what time are you talking about? 
I thought you said that you were going to, wherever we went, you were going to stand up and preach. And I was like, oh, God. Okay. So I got all my little college flyers out of my bag, flyers that Ted made for uh, the Point College Ministries. And I handed them out to everybody. And I said, if you guys go put one of these on every table, I'll pull out a chair and I'll stand up and preach. So they're like, okay, we'll do it. So they started handing them out. I brought the restaurant. I was like, what's going on? What are you handing me? So I pull out a chair in the middle and I just go at it. I don't know what to say. I just start, I start preaching. The manager comes up and she's like standing right underneath my chair with her hands. Very, very professional. Sir, get down from the chair. Sir, get down from the chair. Sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave. And so I'm just like ignoring her to the degree. I'm like, I hear you, I hear you, but I'm preaching and they're doing their thing and I'm doing my thing. And, and, uh, you know, we had finished eating and, and so we were fine with leaving, but, uh, we wanted to finish our deal. And then so I, you know, I apologized afterwards. Sorry that, that I made you have to do that. To the manager, um, should we pay before we leave? Yes, okay. So, uh, we're going to stick around and pay, and then we'll leave. That, that's a funny story. Uh, that did absolutely no good. It didn't, didn't do. It, was, it kind of maybe built a little bit of faith in some of the people that were with us. But we didn't get a single response. People were trying to eat dinner with their families. They would rather that I just shut up. They were a little bit perturbed that we put something down on their table. While they had waited for however long they waited for a table, they were shelling out how much money they were shelling out. They had taken their family, gotten their kids dressed, got all the way to the restaurant, invited their friends, whatever kind of went into getting all those people there. And what we really just did was we took Jesus Christ and we interrupted their meal with it and they were not impressed. It didn't matter what kind of Greek or Hebrew I was breaking down because they weren't hearing it. They wanted the Hebrew word for shut up and get off the chair because I'm trying to eat my dinner. So my point in telling that story is that that was not an easy thing. That burden was not light and that yoke was not easy. That was very hard to do. And Jesus said that his yoke was easy and he said that his burden was light. So I propose to you, if you're taking on a heavy burden and you're taking on a heavy yoke, maybe it's not his. Maybe it's something that somebody else put on you. Maybe it was the best idea that the church ever had, but it wasn't the best idea that Jesus ever had. Maybe that's why I didn't get any response from what I did, because I wasn't doing it underneath his power and his unction. I was doing it underneath my own and the nudging of Jared Gordon, who told me it was about that time. It wasn't easy. It wasn't light and it wasn't effective. So what Brad figured out was in the 1970s, he was getting a pretty good conversion rate with his campus evangelical style ministry. And by 1980, that conversion rate had been cut completely in half. 1982 to 85-ish. They were seeing half as much people responding to what the same message that they've been sharing. The message was never going to change. The message that I shared at TGI Fridays was the same message that's been shared for thousands of years. That'll never change. We didn't do anything different with the message. We didn't do what some people are doing these days and change Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to Mother, Lover, and Friend, which is really a true change that happened in a recent Bible translation geared to a new age perspective. We're not going to change the gospel. We're not going to change the message. But if we don't change the way that we share it, we might see what Brad saw, which was our effectiveness get cut right in half. By 1989, he had completely left the ministry. And he didn't understand what was going on. He said he felt like the ground was shifting underneath his feet and he couldn't figure out why. Then he enrolled in some of the classes at the colleges he was trying to preach at. By the way, by that time, his conversion rate was down to 2% or less. 
of people that he encountered. He enrolled into uh, college at one of the campuses he used to preach at, and he specifically enrolled into psychology and philosophy classes, and he realized for the first time what was going on. He was beginning to experience what we call right now today postmodernistic view and thought. Postmodernism had overtaken the philosophical world and changed the way that people have viewed the Christian message. Postmodernism, in a nutshell, the, there's a French philosopher, Jean Louis Lyotard, who defined it initially and, and concisely incredulous towards the meta narrative. And that's the most succinct definition there is of it. And what that basically means is that it's a, it's a position of thought that is rejecting and very standoffish of all encompassing stories that are supposed to project truth to the world. In other words, when you look at Christianity, you open up your Bible and what are the messages? What are the stories that we have to share? Everybody knows Jonah and the whale, right? And so we preach stories about Jonah and the whale. And inside that huge meta narrative of a story, we're supposed to be able to project truth to everybody in this world. And, and postmodernistic thought says, I don't, I don't care about that. I've never been inside the belly of a whale, so your Jonah thing is not helping me out. Well, what about Noah and the ark? I've never seen a boat that big. I don't know about animals coming in pairs and all that stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Evan Almighty was a good movie, but it's not helping me out. Okay. What about Moses and the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt? Never been to Egypt. But look what God did. What did God do? He didn't do it for me. He did it for them. And that's great. Postmodernistic view is very narrow in scope. And what it's done is it's taken people's viewpoint from being what is good for the whole and what is good for the masses. And how do we follow a thought process that emanates in large groups of people? And it says no longer is that how we find truth. But truth is now going to be found exclusively through our own personal experiences in life. And the church is scared to death of it. Because the church wants people to find truth in the meta narrative and the church is not willing to change. We want to talk about how God gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him, that he came to save the whole world and everybody in the world is going, I don't know everybody in the world. What did he do for me? It doesn't change the message. He still came to save the entire world. And you can even use that when you preach. You don't have to throw that to the back burner. But what you have to realize is that when you're talking to an individual, when I'm talking to Aaron about how Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, he needs to know why Jesus did that for him. He doesn't need to know the big overarching meta narrative of how Jesus did that so everybody should worship him. That's a good story. And apparently back in the day, it even had an efficiency rate. But now things are starting to shift. If you're not with it yet, just let me continue. Abe, as Drew writes, while he's talking to Brad about what was going on in the college campuses, it echoed in his, in his ears. Abe said, I don't believe in all that rationality. I don't think there's only way, one way to find truth. The postmodernistic view holds that there is a certain truth for each person. 
And an experience, not rationality, is the key to finding that truth. Postmodernism has a concern for the marginalized. In other words, what we're dealing with is a difference between Newton and Einstein. I'll explain that to you. Newton, very much a genius. Good guy. Christian guy. Newton was actually the one that started the work on the Bible codes. Newton was very much involved with the word of God. Einstein, also a decent guy. Who knows how they both ended up, but at some point, Einstein cited the Old Testament, particularly the book of Genesis, as his inspiration for the theory of relativity. Which, by the way, he hated that they called it the theory of relativity. That's for another time. Who won the battle? Who ended up as the, the father of modern science? The, the new, Newtonian scientific model or the Einstein scientific model? Well, you, if, you don't, if you don't study physics, it may be like a who cares. But Newton started off having all truth. And Einstein came and blew everything Newton did out of the water. And everything that we know about modern reality as far as science and physics is based on how Einstein saw the world and what he was able to prove. Why does that matter when we're talking about Blue Peter and the anchors of Aporia? Because the Newtonian view talked about how nothing was relative and there was an overarching truth based on the forces of gravity and the electromagnetic force and other things that he studied for all of reality and everything in it. What Einstein realized is that that's not true. Actually, everything is relative. So he developed two theories of relativity, one called special relativity, one called general relativity. And he said that time actually passes not at a constant for every person, but relative to that person's own movement. In other words, he said everybody is constantly moving at light speed. You're either moving at light speed through time or you're moving at light speed through space. It's not possible to move at light speed through, through space. So you're moving through time. And any time that you decide to move physically, you are deducting a little bit from your movement through time and directing it through your movement through space. Now, if that's like crazy, just think about if somebody is riding a bicycle 20 miles an hour and they're going north and then they slightly veer to the east and they're still going 20 miles an hour, it's going to take them a little bit longer to get that same point because part of their movement to the north has now been deducted and, and is now moving a little bit towards the east. You understand what I'm saying? Now, that's what Einstein theorized about all of the movement through time and space. You don't have to understand a word of that. All you have to understand is that Einstein was right. And everything in this world that God created is created relative to your own experience. That is physically true. That is scientifically true. That is mathematically true. And we're starting to realize that that's spiritually true. It's all relative to your own experience, not the truth of the gospel, but the truth of your life and how that relates to the gospel. Let me continue and you'll I think you'll understand what I'm saying here. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says we live in a world that is constantly changing the way that it shares information. Amen. Constantly changing the way that it shares information. I'm so ready to finish preaching this word to you. I feel like there are some good things at the end. I hope you're paying attention. I hope you get this. Because we're raising that flag. We're raising that blue flag right now. We're ready to embark. I want to tell you the church is scared to death right now of a trend that is happening in philosophy, a trend that is happening in worldview. And if we are smart and intelligent, if we are going to win this war and we are going to win the day, 
The church needs to jump out in front of the trend. People that jump out in front of trends, especially positive trends, are called pioneers. And that's what I want to be, and that's what I want you to be. So I want you to raise your flag with me and get ready to change some things. Because the whole world is shifting. The way that we share information is constantly changing. It's gone into a social media realm. You now have your friends, although there may be hundreds or thousands, uh, when it comes down to it, you just have a succinct piece of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a succinct number of people on your Facebook page that you care about. You follow a certain number of people on Twitter. I know, I know not everybody does, but I'm just giving you the idea. The way that the world shares information, information is now available 24-7. To be connected to individuals is available to you in ways that it never was before. It was hard to even be connected outside your own home before the telephone was invented. Then the cell phone was invented, actually in 1980s when the, when the car phone was invented and the brick phone was invented. <laughs> then you could kind of be connected to people even inside your own vehicle. I said, I'm going to McDonald's. <laughs> okay. The, they even had the wires still sometimes connected them to the saw show. That is crazy. <laughs> now you have your cell phone. And while you're driving, you're connected to Twitter, Facebook, people on your phone, texting, all kinds of things. God only knows we have to develop cars that can drive themselves quick because it's getting out of control, getting out of control. And my wife is constantly on me. Don't text while you drive. Don't text while you drive. Every time that I'm driving by myself, what happens? I get a text from my wife, you know, another text from my, she knows I'm in the car and she texts me. And then when she's driving, riding with me, don't text while you're in the car. Okay. I'm just saying I never I haven't. I'm just saying I haven't talked to her about that yet. So I wanted to tell everybody at once that I feel like that's hypocritical, but I love you anyway. Okay. So the way that we share information is constantly, constantly changing. But Christians have this innate ability to stand still and never move. And sometimes to their own demise. See, when Drew was talking to Abe, Abe had no problem with the message of the gospel. He didn't say that it was wrong. He didn't say that Jesus Christ never lived. He didn't say that Jesus Christ wasn't a good guy. He didn't say that he disagreed uh, with love your enemies and pray for those that despitefully. He didn't disagree with any of that. He agreed with all of it. He went across the world and he met other people and he wanted to love everybody. Love was still his message. What he had a problem with was the way that that message was shared and the way that that message was presented to him. Because it was presented to him inside the package of, not only is this the message, but this is how you have to act after you believe the message. And the way that you share the message, it has to be done in this way. And this is the way that we view people. This is the way that we judge people. This is the way that we think about people. And this is the way that we approach people. All of that is wrapped up into the same package as the message itself, and the landscape of people is changing, but the way that we share with people doesn't change, and what we end up with as Christians is no longer are we just based on the message of Jesus Christ, but we are now based on a conservative standpoint, a Republican standpoint, an American standpoint of Christianity, and it's not just the message of Jesus Christ, but it's all of the morality of society and the way that culture views people and the way that we present this package is now mixed up with the narrative of our Lord and Savior. And what we end up doing is repelling people instead of bringing them to us. Let me give you an example. Postmodern thought. I really want you to pay attention. Postmodern thought is based on liberal theology. 
It's based on a liberal worldview. And most Christians consider themselves conservatives. If you are somebody that likes to label yourself, I personally do not. So I don't like the term conservative, liberal, liberal, Republican, Democrat, any of that. I'd rather just be a Christian. And if I want to go vote, I'm just going to vote for the, the person that I like the best, regardless of what label they have themselves under. Now there's Tea Party and there's all these other things. And every time I get excited about a movement in politics, I find out and you find out, story comes out. They're all a bunch of charlatans, they're all a bunch of fakes. George Bush and Barack Obama went to the same college, had the same professor. It's true story. Osama bin Laden, we got to get him. His brother died in 1988, leaving George Bush's ranch on a plane flight. True story. So uh, don't get confused about who the Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives are. They're all in bed together. And the moment you start trusting them instead of letting your faith guide you is the moment you find yourself in deep waters. I'm getting way off subject. Let me bring it back. So we we don't like uh, the liberal theology, and I'm with you. I don't like it either. We don't like Barack Obama, and I'm with you. You might want to edit that, Ted. Uh, I don't like him either. There's probably a drone in here anyway. It doesn't matter. So whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Obama. It's nothing personal. I just don't like you. Personally. So anyway. So it, when we decide to take the, the standpoint as uh, gun-toting, and yes, I am. I'm proud of it. Texas. Yes, I'm proud of that, too. Conservative Republican standpoint, based as much on our distaste for liberals as our positive taste for Republicans or conservatives. We take that stance and then we start to listen to the radio shows. We start to listen to the agenda. We start to watch Bill O'Reilly on TV and and we start to listen to Glenn Beck and we start to listen to all the and I and I listen and see all that, too. But I just don't let my mind get consumed by it, because before long, what happens is. The liberal theology that is the product uh, or is the foundation of postmodern thought that is ruling the college campus and starting to rule society as a whole actually has a heart for the marginalized and the conservative standpoint does not. What does that mean? That means liberals, while they take it too far, one of their platforms is to care for the environment. And if you listen to how much conservatives hate liberals, you would think the conservatives are ready to just just smoke the environment because liberals like it. In fact, and I'm not Glenn Beck's entertainer and I've been a Glenn Beck fan for a long time. That is not good for the drone either. There's man, I'm in deep water. Okay, so anyway, I have been he's in I don't understand that. But when they were really getting heavy, hot and heavy on their environmentalist agenda. He talked about how he was going to buy a fleet of SUVs, leave his washing machine running 24 hours a day, uh, make sure that his fireplace was smoking out his chimney all, all hours, of, whatever, as much as he could do to just throw as much carbon dioxide into the, just to, just to get the best of Al Gore. And I know he's joking, but there are people that actually did that because he said to do it and he said he was going to do it. So on one hand, it's like, yeah, I don't like taking things too far either, but is it really such a bad idea to, to take care of the earth that God gave us? I don't think it's such a bad idea. Is it so terrible to recycle? Now, the problem is when you get into the agendas behind all that, understand money rules, everything, blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying, generally speaking, it's not such a bad idea to care for the environment. I mean, even conservatives weed and feed their yards. Yeah, a little bit of seed and water, make sure the grass grows. My my kids love flowers, and I love that they love flowers. I don't want to tell them that flowers are evil because liberal people want to save flowers. 
Lizards aren't bad either. Just because they won't let you build something because a lizard lives there, I understand that's taking it too far, or a snail or whatever. Also, part of the liberal agenda is to promote, uh, to promote the homosexual agenda. I'm not for promoting the homosexual agenda, but because they do that, they have taken a marginalized people group and allowed them to feel like people. So from the liberal standpoint, gay people are comfortable with liberal theology because inside of liberal theology and postmodern thought, they feel like people. And inside of the church and conservative standpoints, they feel like less than. So why do we have to take the stance as Christians? Because the Bible talks about homosexuality as a sin. All of a sudden, we have to marginalize the homosexual person and make them feel like they're less than a person. When Jesus said to love them, to care for them, that they are equal to you, they are caught up in a certain kind of sin. Yes, they are. But if you look at that sin and how it's listed in the New Testament, it's alongside like 31 other sins, one of which you are a part of. So you're not exempt from that list. So there's no reason to marginalize. Now, the liberal agenda promotes the feminist agenda. And now I'm not for women ruling men or men ruling women. I'm for equality. I'm for if you took me and my wife stood up here next to each other and we were able to just unzip our flesh and you could just see our souls. Could you tell who's the female and who's the male? Or would the souls look the same? It'd be kind of the same, I think. And the soul is the seat of the mind, the will and the emotion. So I don't want to marginalize a woman's will or her emotions or the, the concept of her mind because of her gender. Liberals don't do that. The conservative patriarchal view sometimes does. Why can't we find balance in the middle? Postmodern thought is not actually that terrible. Here's what it would do to the Christian landscape. Are you ready? It switches us from the meta narrative and the mega church model to micro ministry and discipleship. In other words, this is what I feel like the spirit is saying. Mega churches have been built and mega churches have had their day and God bless mega churches. And what I hear the Holy Spirit saying is they will thrive because they are successful and they are seeking God and they are sincere. There's nothing wrong, but they will not thrive because that is right now not the modality of the Holy Spirit. What the spirit is saying is when we we, we project those meta narratives to large groups of people. We can claim 2000 salvations and 350 baptisms and 273 rededications. But two weeks later, we don't know where any of those people are. Because we feel like in our meta narrative, we have displayed truth to large groups of people and they should be okay. Postmodern thought says people can only be reached through personal experience. That type of truth isn't relative. It's not relative enough for the individual. And now you tell me, is it more burdensome to stand up in the middle of TGI Fridays and preach a sermon to people who don't want to hear it? Is it more burdensome to stand out on a college campus with a bullhorn and yell John 316? Is it more burdensome to put a, a huge speaker out in the middle of a, of a highway, which used to happen a lot where we live, and, and plug a microphone into it and preach at cars passing by, is it more burdensome to walk into a large crowd of people, have everybody staring at you and want to combat you? Is it more burdensome to do that? Or is it more burdensome to take an individual that doesn't know Christ, take them down to five guys, get them a burger, some fries, and a Dr. Pepper, sit across from them one-on-one, -on -one, and share with them your personal experience in Christ? 
Is that, does that seem like it would be easier? Does that seem like a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light? And if you do that with a person, could you follow up with that one person? You can't follow up with 2,000 people. But could you follow up with one? Could you get it? Could you get it? Could you split a large pizza? Could you talk to them about Jesus Christ? Could you let them drink a beer if they want to? I'm not even condemn you if you have a sip of that beer. Go ahead. I'll condemn, I'm going to condemn drunkenness 24 hours a day because the Bible says not to be a drunkard. Jesus had a glass of wine. I don't, it's not about that. It's not about the details and it's not about the rules. As long as you're following what Jesus Christ said to do and you're not walking in sin, isn't it less burdensome to sit down, let your hair down a little bit and tell them a little bit about your own faults and experiences? There are a few things that need to be done in the postmodern evangelical world. The first thing we need to do is understand that they don't want to hear the big story. They want to hear your story. Liberals and postmodern thinkers are earnestly interested in your story. They will allow you to tell your story because it's your story. What they will not respond to is the PG-13 version. They don't want your story cleaned up. They want it messy. They want it true. They want it honest. They want to know your shortcomings. They want to know your struggles because you are lying to them. Other words, and they see right through it because they've already had the struggles. They've dealt with the same things you've dealt with. C.S. Lewis had an amazing quote. He said, you have to court a virgin differently than you court a divorcee. One is happy to just hear the charming words. The other one needs a demonstration of love to get them past things that they've already experienced and to make you believable. In America, there's not anybody that hasn't heard the gospel. You're not ever courting a virgin. You're always courting a divorcee. You're always talking to somebody who's been in church but is no longer. Somebody who went and didn't like it. Somebody whom it didn't work for. Somebody that grew up in a Christian family and hated it. Somebody that was gay, thought they were gay their whole life and were never accepted by their their, their Christian uh, family or immediate or not immediate, one or the other. They've all heard, they all know Jesus Christ, at least who he is, by gospel standards. Unless you're working with children, they're all divorcees. And your words won't charm them. A demonstration of his love will. And your story will get them to listen. That's part two, building trust. The last part, and we can go ahead and get our worship team up here. And Louie and Omar both get ready. Postmoderns have a strong social conscience and a willingness to serve. That's one thing about the liberal agenda. They will volunteer to serve Turkey to the homeless on Thanksgiving. They will go to church underneath a bridge for the homeless. They are all about being activists in their faith. Because part of the liberal agenda and part of the postmodern agenda is activism. That's why Barack Obama got elected by such a landslide. Because his background was community activist. That's all he'd ever done. And like it or don't like it, that's what so much of the world wants. They want to do something to change their environment. They don't just want to hear about their environment. They're tired of sitting on the ship as it's docked 
on the shoreline with the flag of Blue Peter raised in the air, hearing the captain talk about how things are going on out there in the unmarked seas. They're ready to take off. They want to get out there and experience something. They've had enough people on the ship stab them in the back. They've seen the hypocrites that line the starboard side. They've heard the message over and over again. I'm ready to go do something. I don't know if you're ready to go do something. I'm ready to change the landscape. If postmodernism is going to be the way that the world wants to go, that's fine with me. Let's jump out in front of it. Let's steer that ship. There are just some things that that we have to do, especially as pastors. I want to share a couple more scriptures with you. One of the reasons that the church is not doing this is because the leadership is so lacking. Now, anybody with a with a little bit of logic and reason, and I imagine I'm talking to a lot of you out there, I don't think probably any of you this month stepped onto a college campus with a bullhorn. I don't think any of you went street preaching. I don't think any of you pulled out a chair at a restaurant and angered everybody in the establishment. I don't think any of you did that. Why not? You might not be sure what to do, but it's pretty easy to feel like what's the right thing not to do a lot of times. So because you're a reasonable person, you haven't done that, but you haven't been taught what to replace that with. Because the people that are supposed to teach you are so focused on the ministry behind the pulpit. They don't have time to get out there in the trenches and see what's going on to lead you and guide you in the fact that we are supposed to be doing something more. We are supposed to be doing something different. So we have abandoned the old ways, but we have not replaced them with the new ways, which means we are caught stagnant in the middle. And Jesus says in Revelation 3.15, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I were that you were cold or hot, but because you're stuck between the old ways and the new ways, you are lukewarm. Neither cold nor hot, and I will spew you out of my mouth. That's where the church sits right now. Lukewarm in the mouth of Jesus Christ. And he's trying not to throw up. And he's trying to let his Holy Spirit lead you and guide you. You don't have to build a 10,000 person auditorium. You have to build one relationship. One relationship. Now, if we approach it one person at a time... We'll never make enough money for the whole world to know our names. That's okay. It's not about how many. It's about how far. How far. If we can take them all the way to the cross, we've done something good. If we can take them past the cross to the throne, we've done something even better. If we meet them on the other side in heaven, the joy that we will experience will be worth more than that $600 million Powerball lotto ticket. so hold on are you sure first timothy chapter 1 verse 18 and i really am closing in fact um omar if you want to come up here and just run through the bulletin with us real quick after this first timothy 118 says this charge i commit unto thee son timothy and ushers get ready with the um the offering bucket according to the prophecies which went before you that you by them might war a good warfare verse 19 holding 
faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. We're talking about that ship pulling out of the dock. Remember the stories that we talked about at the beginning, Jonah and the whale? How did Jonah end up being the most successful evangelist of all time? He was on a ship, wasn't he? Going the wrong direction. Hello, evangelical Christianity. God sent a storm and had to knock him off the ship. They had to throw him overboard, and God had to send a large fish to take him the other direction. When it spit him out on the shoreline, he was upset and he hated the people. But because it was God's method, it didn't matter the lack of his passion for the message The whole area was saved, and it was the worst area in the world at the time. Because it was God's method. It was his methodology. He reached all the people. Remember Noah and his ark? What happened there? Another ship. Another vast ocean. Another story of salvation by being on the right ship, going the right direction at the right time. What about Moses and him taking the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, he arrived in Egypt in a basket floating down a river. And if you read it in the King James, it calls it an ark. His name, in fact, means drawn out in Hebrew because he was drawn out of that river. And he led the children of Israel where? Across a sea. Right? On their way to their promised land. Ripples. This is the second message in our series. The ripples that we create today will be based on the methods that we choose to share the timeless, unchanging uh, message of Jesus Christ, the gospel that will never change and will never be compromised. But if we as Christians don't change the way that we approach it, we're going to be stuck at sea, not going left or right, back or forth, just lukewarm. And when that happens, we become like Abe, who told his friend Drew That I'm leaving the faith because I don't believe that's the only way to find truth. Not because I don't like the truth. I don't like the way it was presented. And when that happens, 1 Timothy tells us we're headed for shipwreck. So if you don't want the ship to wreck, if you don't want to be stuck at sea, I urge you, I encourage you, I challenge you this morning. Stand with me. Help me raise that flag. And let's not leave lost souls behind us in our wake because we're scared of mega ministry. Let's grab them one at a time and just take them through mini discipleship. Can we do that? Amen. He that winneth souls is wise, one at a time. 